This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great, man. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I just, you know, finished up Halloween in the New York City, which is always entertaining. So Okay. Did you did you did you go out like in an outfit or anything? What was your outfit or did you not do uh, that? My, I built my child and I built a diamond Minecraft armor out of cardboard boxes and uh, okay. in, in the three doodler. And then we covered it in duct tape to make it diamond color. And we went out trick or treating. And in New York you trick or treat at the bodegas. Which are all the what? little grocery stores. Wait, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, it Wait, you don't go to people's crazy. houses. What? There's no, you can't like you can't go into other people's apartments buildings, right? Like you can yeah. trick or treat in your apartment building, yeah. but then you have to like go to businesses to get your candy. Oh wow, I never thought of this, but obviously, yeah. yeah. Okay, you go to the bodega, <laughs> so you, and then these poor you go to the bodega, owners. and you go to the bodega owners and go trick or treat, and then they give you candy. That's crazy. I didn't it is actually. Thank it's you. Really funny to Thank watch. you for that little tidbit of living in New York there. Uh, right? Uh, <laughs> what is that, dude? Okay. Who do we have on the 3D pod today? Let's talk some additive, additive manufacturing here. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. Let's just do something. We have Gabe Linka on the 3D pod today, and he is at Children's Hospital, uh, Children's Hospital Medical Center, in, uh, and that's in, uh, Omaha, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And he is, well, he's an MRI technician, who was doing thoracic uh, surgery type MRI stuff. And he took a, more than an interest in this and trying to combine it with 3d printing and try to do some really, really exciting stuff. And we're always interested in like, you know, looking at like, you know, how does 3d printing actually help people today in hospitals? We know the future is going to be amazing, but what can we do today? And I think that Gabe is really going to help us on that. So, so welcome to the show, Gabe. Yeah. Thanks guys. I uh, appreciate you having me. So first off, uh, we always ask the same question. Says, how did you first get in touch with uh, with three D printing? Uh, yeah, so you kind of touched upon that. Um, it was about eight years ago now. I was uh, interviewing for a job at, at Children's Nebraska, uh, and uh, my my background was as an MRI technologist, like you said, and I'd done cardiac imaging at our local VA hospital. Um, loved that. We kind of there were some contract switches, and they lost the cardiac MRI part of the program. So I was interviewing for a cardiac. MRI position here at Children's Nebraska. And uh, during that interview, I was handed a, a model of a, a 3D printed heart uh, made out of a rubberized material and basically asked, do you think you can figure out how to make these in-house so we don't have to order them from a company? Uh, that's that's literally where it started. I looked into it from from that point on. And uh, yeah, that's that's where it all started. So when you got started, was it like really, were you really hopeful? Did you like, oh my God, here's some physical thing? Or were you really skeptical about 3D printing initially? it kind of was a game changer in my decision-making process. I mean, I was excited about the position. Um, cardiac MR was a, a big passion of mine, but taking those scans that I made uh, with MRCT and making it into a 3D model for a surgeon to prepare for surgery uh, was, was just a whole nother level for me. And I love, I'm a, I'm a mechanic as a hobby. I've got a lift in my garage. So engineering and, and mechanics and understand that stuff has always just been kind of a passion on the side. It really allowed me to collide that with my medical imaging um, professional background. And that's, uh, so it was a huge interest and a lot of excitement, you know, to see, you know, a pediatric heart with the size that some of these are 
exactly how you're going to see it inside the body before you get into the operating room was just game changing to me, mentality, my mentality on how you prepare, prepare for surgery. So then, you know, getting in group in a, in a group with surgeons that use that and, and already had kind of a practice, they'd done a couple of models that they'd ordered from uh, materialize, I think originally, but being able to build a program that we would do that in house for our, our surgeons and, and physicians was, was a really exciting opportunity. I'm just curious, what kind of printing then do you, are you using in order to get the accuracy that I assume you want? And then at the yes. same time, how important is accuracy, given that this isn't something that's going in the body, it's just being examined, right? Right, right. So these are still class two medical devices because they, they guide uh, medical care. So they guide the physician's decision-making processes. So, I mean, we're, we're sub-millimeter accuracy. I mean, we basically, our, our prints have to be a replica of the imaging. And so an overseeing a radiologist or cardiologist, an imaging physician verifies that accuracy from from the model design to the model print. So super accurate. We we have different cases where we're maybe not making something for surgical planning. So we don't put these things in the body, but we prepare for surgery on the body with them. The other educational tools, things like that, um, you don't have to worry about such precise accuracy. It's just when it's a patient specific model uh, that we need to be super accurate. We started with a, a Stratasys Eden 260VS. Um, basically, when I got hired, this is the story as you talk to people in 3D printing and healthcare. I walked in, they already had the Eden 260VS, which was a single material polyjet printer uh, that printed out of that rubberized material. We used Tango at the time. Um, and we had materialized software. So we already, before FDA, like clearance in, in software and printers was even a thing, we had really good printers and software to get started. So I think that was huge. In getting started, I believe the Eden was a 32 micron accuracy for printing. Uh, so super accurate, you know, anatomic models. Yeah, nice smell on the Tango as well. I really like the smell of the Tango stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's the that, that pleasant, huh? Like it, so it's, it's like a rose. <laughs> it, no, no, it's like kind of like it's like a imagine like the Jetsons made like Play-Doh. That's the smell of Tango, dude. It's really nice. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but but um, so and and uh, the problem with the Tango material, of course, is that it was like well, I wouldn't call it elastomeric, but it was kind of rubber-ish, but not if you did a whole bunch of stuff with it. So was it enough for you guys that kind of material, or or not really? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You could you could cut it open and you could prepare. We would create cuts in the heart at specific locations to better visualize, you know, ventricular septal defects or, or uh, odd outflow tracks. So we would kind of do some of the designing ourselves. Tango really never let you suture or, or you know, kind of actually stitch on the material because it would pull through. So um, we, we eventually upgraded to a, a J750 uh, so that we could use Agilis, which is a little bit stronger and tougher, uh, but you lose, Tango is a little bit more realistic to the feel of the material. So that was that was a growth that we had where it was a little bit more dependable material. Uh, but then this last year, we upgraded to the J850 Digital Anatomy Printer, which now we have an entire array of, of materials and we can make almost any tissue, synthesize almost any tissue and models that we print. Yeah, so, like, so you can synthesize the actual like feel and the texture, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, you can even part. <laughs> Yeah, you could have pockets with gel. So if you cut in and it, you need oh, it to lose, I mean, you can you can really do uh, amazing things with the J850 um, digital anatomy um, set up by Stratasys. So, so you're able to almost set up the whole surgery, if you will, and then the surgeon can practice in the physical world 
not yeah. on a piece of software and then feel and have mistakes happen and it have it ooze out like up oh, I hit the pocket that I wasn't supposed to exactly yeah and the, that's the that's the exciting part you know we were kind of doing that with just the hard originally uh, making certain slices those types of things and now we're getting closer to that realistic you know you can really do a full simulated surgery where you can cut stitch and do that part we're excited to do it we haven't done a ton of those yet we've done some testing and are getting close to to that next step, but getting that upgrade was huge to open the capabilities to do that. I'm really curious because I've been talking to a lot of people who have this kind of, um, this kind of experience. It's like Agilus is like I thought it was like 32k or something like that, 37k or something like that. I can understand that somebody would do this, you know. But if we're talking about J750, it's a big system, right? And it's a really yeah. expensive system, quite expensive. How did you manage to get the relevance inside the hospital that somebody? Uh, some some accounting person plus some kind of practice leader or department leader was like, yeah, we need this thing. Like, what was the thing that triggered them to get this thing? Because now we're talking a serious investment, right? Yeah, definitely. So we we worked, you know, originally the the Golden Foundation donated money to get us the the Eden two sixty uh, as well as the software licensure for three years, and that was kind of like our runway. Like, can we prove we need this this program? Um, there was a resounding yes, and how we proved like the the validity for the J seven fifty was basically I was printing multiple parts one at a time because the Eden would do one part at a time. You could load different colors. And so it was kind of a an interesting adventure with printing out of different colors, but then some colors weren't available. So I had a small Prusa FDM printer printing parts to prove like how multicolor parts were necessary to basically differentiate structures. And that was mostly for more of just a visualiza- visualization piece, you know, so they could see different structures, see where the vessels were around tumors, uh, and we have some tumors that that we made back then that literally we couldn't do it all in one print. So I had to assemble them. So it took some really specific design aspects and we ended up using magnets so you could actually pull apart the model. So let's say you had a tumor in the middle of the abdomen, you, you could pull the liver off and then you've got, you know, the next layer of the duodenum and, and, and the other anatomies. And you could pull each of those off all the way down to where it'd get to your tumor and all the vessels. Um, and it was really amazing because we had that challenge to prove, okay, we need a printer that can print multiple materials and multiple colors. We figured out a workflow that helped create like realistic, you know, simulations before we had like the tissue matrix capabilities. So our surgeons would have those models on the back surgical table and have somebody pulling each organ off as they were segmenting through the body to get to a tumor. And it really changed the game for the surgeon to prepare. Uh, It changed the game for like the family to understand what was going to happen. Um, we have a really cool video of a, a five-year-old child setting down his iPad and actually listening to a surgeon explain his surgery. So the enlightenment <laughs> and the better understanding of everybody involved was a huge key in like, okay, adoption, this is important. Let's make this next step. But also the fact that that case specifically that I'm talking of saved about three hours of OR time. So when you can, and, and that's a relevant number that the surgeon estimated based on his experience. But when you start to get those types of things, administrators are going to listen and say, well, you really saved 180 minutes in an hour? And if you, and you, it's really hard to, to quantify exact numbers with all of this. And that's been the struggle of many programs is how do we prove this? Um, we just did it enough times and through, you know, being very conscientious with our spending and proving things with unique ways like we did with the magnets or, or me hand painting things. It just proved to them that we, we we sustained at a level to continue proving, oh, this one saved this much time or this one had a better outcome because 
this specific case, we wouldn't have thought of operating that way. Or the family better understood and never would have understood the complexity of the surgery without the model. Our administration quickly was like, wow, this is incredible. We need to get behind it. Uh, And so our foundation went out and and raised funds for the J750. And in that time was when we kind of developed a really unique workflow to gain internal funding mechanisms to fund the lab so that we residually now have funding and a budget and all those types of things. And you got a five-year-old to put down an iPad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's probably the most amazing thing out of this, really. And, yeah, that's so we're, that's we're, impressive. And, and, and I like the idea of this, this, this you know, operating, operating room minutes, of course, are really expensive. It could be $100. It could be, well, it depends on a lot of factors, of course. And especially, especially thinking in thoracic, it could be even more expensive because you need a bunch more people. So that's a real quantifiable thing. So I think that, that, that finding this quantifiable case you know, it is really important, but is it also really important to get the doctors on your side to be like, you know, to have a certain champion you? Is that also like a thing? Or would you argue that people, you know, you should really do that more as well? Or Oh, that's the, that's the top priority. I mean, your, your surgeons and your physicians are, are, are paramount in, in getting your hospital administration to understand the benefit to them. I mean, that's, that's the way it is with almost any technology. I mean, we had active surgeons that, that, like I said, were ordering 3d printed parts, you know, anatomic models outside. When you break down the cost there, I mean, it just kind of depends how much you print on the validity. Do you bring it in-house or do you not? Um, And then you consider safety. I I forgot to mention this with the, you know, proving concept. You know, every one of those minutes in the OR is one aspect financially, but then you have the safety of a child when they're not under anesthesia for longer periods of time. I mean, those two things combined really give you a really good case to prove, you know, why it's important, why it's valid. The physician side of that, I mean, they can speak directly to, you know, in pediatrics, specifically with congenital defects, it's hard to get, you know, one specific defect that you can track and get time reductions and and OR uh, anesthesia reductions on the same thing over and over. There's a giant multi-site on a, a really complex situation that I know was working towards that. But when you have a surgeon that your administration trusts, and then you have Physicians that are getting into administration in hospitals, you know, your, your, your surgeon in chiefs and those type of people, uh, they really can, can get a voice if they understand what you're doing. And that's the biggest thing is getting people to understand the benefit. Um, and those groups of surgeons and physicians are the key factor that allowed us to grow. Um, we now work with almost every subspecialty in our hospital, and it's becoming routine patient care to either use 3D printing or virtual reality. You know, we use a lot of different 3D venues to to help uh, improve patient care and I, I like the patient care aspect so much because we, we always talk about the surgeon part and i want to get in that later but but just first off like this whole idea of a family you, you have to okay it's your kid it's a small child uh and then you're doing thoracic surgery you're going to open the, the kid's chest up and do something with the heart this is a very stressful meeting you know oh yeah uh, and then and then you've got all these terms and venus this and all this floating around Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and, and this whole this decision-making model, this idea of getting these guys to understand what's going to happen, that to me could be super valuable to a patient. I just have to imagine those people that, that would just, for them to get an inkling of what exactly has to be done, you know, uh, that, that to me would be really valuable. Oh, yeah. Even an, even an adult, I mean, showing them, you know, the way we used to do it was showing them, you know, black and white images on a screen, right? This is your MRI. This is your CT scan. Here is what we need to operate on. This is abnormal. It should look like this. Well. First of all, you can give it color and make it 3D on a screen, right? That's one step that you can use and actually show reconstructions that are made. And that helps an adult, right, you know, better understand when you can see it in, in, in 3D space on a 2D screen. 
But then when you can print it, it's it's a real real life-size version of what you're going to see in the OR and you can just hand it to them. You don't have to lose the the fidelity going into like a technological aspect or putting on a VR headset or all the different avenues that you could try and show this. Um, but when you have kids that are used to playing with physical toys and those types of things, it just makes a lot better understanding for everyone invi- involved. Dr. Lincoln Wong is a radiologist by trade. He's a, a the medical director of our 3D lab. He kind of uses 3D prints and his biggest way to explain it is it's almost like a translative tool for a radiology report and, and a surgeon to all be on the same page. So when that works between those two medical minds, how much better does it work on someone that doesn't know anything about medicine? And you can show them, this is this vessel, this is a tumor, this green part that we need to get out. And you see how it's in this area. We have to watch out for all these things. And it gives you things to point to and direct that we can all understand. So it's it's paramount in better understanding for patients. And when you talk about families, I mean, you're trusting your child to to a team, to a surgeon to, to operate and, and take care of a medical situation that they know very little about. You know, they probably didn't know anything about it until their child encountered it. Um, so it just gives them a much better trusting aspect, understanding what the actual you know medical problem is and what the solution and how they're going to do that. It's probably the most beautiful part of, of this whole this whole lab. Yeah, I think so. I can imagine because when I was a kid, I was only 13. I had a, a, a younger sister was born then. And she had a, a really minor, relatively super minor uh, congenital heart uh, defect or issue. And it just was such an abstract thing that I could remember as not really being able to deal with it, not really being able to understand it, you know? And I didn't have to take a choice about it, right? My, my parents are the ones who had to give their consent and all this stuff, you know? And I was just like, and I remember still to this very day, this thing is just like, you know, my sister had something and then she didn't have it. And then, but I have no idea what it is. I can't even visualize it because I don't know what exactly uh, this thing was, you know? We have a library of models where if it's something that that's, that's fairly common, I mean, there's some small defects that are, more common than others that we prepped like a library. So you could just grab that model and show whether it's specifically on that patient's anatomy, but it's the same or very similar. So we have educational tools designed to just grab and use in those moments uh, for explaining as well. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's really good, especially if there's choices, right? Do we do left or right? You know, and 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 are people using these kind of libraries a lot, or is this kind of still something that's up and coming? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. So we had like some of the main congenital defects designed so that you could show those right away to families uh, if they just discovered them with with echo, you know, so with with echoes are kind of our first defense in the cardiac world. Um, but then we also have like vascular rings or something that that you can have different configurations with how that worked. So we made an entire model set of all of the uh, the possible configurations um, for vascular rings. And so we have that set up on a on a spinning you know, a spinning table that they can, they're magnetized. You can pull off each one and show the different variations. So that way, if a child has a vascular ring, you can grab it and show them exactly what it is. And it's color coded uh, to the neonate arch as well. So for educational purposes, for like our fellows and residents, you know, it's a really complex thing to learn educationally. Well, we have it all printed. We have it all virtually where they can see that entire progression and just better understand the pathology. So helps educate your, your future surgeons and physicians as well as the patients uh, and their families. Okay. And then the other example, and this is specifically what the Stratasys Digital Anatomy guys are all about, this whole idea of getting someone to cut the thing, the model open, to really practice. Is that something you guys are doing? or? 
we've done um, testing so that we're getting to know the different materials. There's a, it's a giant library. And plus you've got uh, the digital anatomy creator, which allows you to custom make, you know, materials with the, the blending capability software. Um, we've done some initial testing and have some really good conceptual ideas. Um, we're just getting ready to do one on a cranial maxillofacial case to, to create from the outside surface all the way into the skull and tumor that's located there uh, for the surgeon to be able to give us some really good feedback on the materials. A lot of that is just getting to know what your library of materials is, how they work together, uh, and then getting the real feedback from your surgeon on, on the feel and then the ability to actually cut and manipulate it like real tissue. And and it's really interesting. I was just thinking about this. Uh, we always see like we see the press images of like the surgical planning models, and it's always like it's like kind of that scene in Shakespeare, like with Yorick. You know, he's holding the skull. It's kind of like that always. And they're always looking at it, really interested. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and but what do they actually do with it? Is it is it something that gets passed around at a meeting? Is it something that, get, that people want to take it apart? You know, you know, what are they actually, what are surgeons actually, especially in a team-based environment where you're talking with a radiologist, maybe some other people, what do they actually do with it? Does it get, does it get a lot of handling, that kind of thing? Right. Some of them, like I said, some of them are just an anatomical model that's, that's designed to be looked at and everyone will look at it and understand. Some of them get completely destroyed and they'll cut them apart uh, to better understand the anatomy and, and, and go through it. Uh, others, we, we, like we said, we print and we think about it ahead of time with design so that they can come apart in certain ways. So some, some pathologies you can see really well, like we just did a recent case where we did the, the skull out of a clear material and polished it and, and, and coated it so you could see through it like glass. And that allowed you to see into the tumor, but then we made a cut down the center of the skull with some magnets so you could pull it apart and see from the inside of the, of the skull where the brain would be to see where these careful areas where the optic nerve was, where the tumor was. Um, and so we can design certain avenues so that, that the model is more useful for various things than just here's the skull with, you know, like you said, the, the looking at it and trying to understand. We can manipulate the materials we use, the finishes that we do to better show all of that. And one of the really big ways to like gain that advantage is to be really engaged with your surgeons as you're designing. So we can send and share virtual files to show them what we're planning to print. And then they understand even more so because we've simulated it virtually before we print it and it can be a more effective model for the various uses that they have. And then the first thing I think a lot of people are thinking about is like, yeah, the 3D printing is nice for now, but like at one point we're all going to get VR, holographic, whatever. How do you think that's going to develop? Is that tactile element of the 3D printing, is that something that's going to be valuable for a long time in your opinion? or? Uh, I think it's going to be a, a honestly a, a kind of a pick and choose. You need to have all the tools, especially for an in-house uh, shop like we are. Um, that's one of the biggest things we've grown in this year. So we add DAP for real simulation, everything else, so that we can make almost anything with 3D printing. But we we grew quickly into virtual reality the start of this year. Um, we work heavily. RTI is a, a partner of ours that we work to kind of create certain digital to, to understand some of this technology, and they've uh, they've helped us to add uh, Z-Space monitors, which are, instead of having to strap on a headset, you know, we use Mimics VR software for looking in a Quest 2 and being able to navigate and manipulate through the same data that we make for a print. Um, we also have Z-Space monitors, which allow us to look at, it's a screen that literally tracks and gives you stereoscopic view of the, the reconstruction without having to strap on a monitor. So Multiple people can look at the Z-Space monitor. We have a laptop from them that you actually, it actually tracks your pupils and will, the, the item will kind of hover out in front of the screen while one person is looking at it. So we've really dove into the 
to, to rounding out our program to all these different digital technologies. But printing always comes down to we need realistic haptic feedback. You know, we need to cut on a model. We need something that we don't want to plug in a patient and their family into a VR screen or a VR headset, and the model just works better there. So I think you really need to have all avenues if you're really trying to be effective with, you know, healthcare advanced visualization. 3D is how we how we interact with with patients, how we interact with their anatomy in the OR, um, how we interact with everything in the world. So when you think about learning from a book and seeing something on a page in two dimensions, it's really hard to understand some of the complex spatial geometries without having it in 3D. So it's kind of, it's good to have a library of these types of tools so that each physician has their own way of interpreting or learning and they have their own vision of how they want to show families and patients and, and staff. Uh, so having a robust toolbox really helps to, to show and be able to advocate for any avenue of learning they want. Okay, okay. And at the moment, you got you, you still have the J you know only have the J fifty or do you have the other printer still or what? Yeah, so we still have the Eden two sixty VS as kind of a, a backup single material. Um, we've got the J eight fifty DAP. Uh, we also have a couple of Form Labs printers that we use for single material prints that uh, um, it just is a little bit less expensive and, and, and works to have kind of on the side for some of these other projects that we're working on. Okay, okay. Because that's the interesting thing for me is that if I'm looking at the, the format system, then I'm thinking you could do more rigid models, you could maybe do some models. There are people doing in the body stuff and on the body stuff with, with form labs. I'm uh, really uh, always stereolithography or VAT polymerization in and on the body always makes me a little bit nervous, but but there you can go much further with that, right? Um, and, and you can do that with Stratasys as well. 3D Systems also offers printers that will, will print um, out of compliant materials for um, in, in the operating room on the surface of the skin. Um, during COVID, we made some ventilator parts as, as backups because there were shortages using um, biocompatible materials with our Form Labs printers. Uh, so there's lots of different avenues uh, that you can go with making those parts. It's just a matter of process, the process that you make sure they're safe uh, and you work within the compliance avenues that, that are recommended by the manufacturer for you know, FDA compliance. Okay. And then how about FDM or material extrusion? Are you still using that or is that kind of fallen by the wayside at the moment? Uh, it's, it's actually really valuable still. Um, there's there's certain prints that don't need the flexibility and all the different material combinations that we have, you know, with, with the J850. Um, we're looking at buying, so we've got an innovation center coming online um, early next year. And we're looking at adding kind of a makerspace with some FDM printers. And FDM technology is rapidly advancing to where you can get multicolor prints uh, really well. We've looked at a couple of different options to add for some educational printing. You know, the cost of, a, of running a Stratasys machine for um, certain prints that are just for education, you know, is, is pretty high. And so if you're making simulators and surgery, you know, those types of things where you're going to be throwing away models or, or using up pieces and parts, we're trying to make those models modularly. So whether we use FDM or we use silicon molding or other tools, to create a base structure and then 3D printing on the Stratasys, the, like a cassette or like a piece that you would place that has the different tissues that we talked about to learn and, and simulate, you know, that's that's kind of the key where FDM is still really useful um, as well as just other uh, typical like molding methods. The first, I'm interested, like when you, eight years ago, the DICOM to SDL workflow was like a horrendous, I think is the word. <laughs> that was terrible, right? I mean, I think, I think, I think a lot has evolved right now 
uh, in terms of there's tons of tools that will do AI based segmentation and and uh, all sorts of stuff. Like like um, so first of all, like what has changed over the last couple of years? This whole just in that first part, this whole getting going from a DICOM, an MRI file, whatever, to 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 a, a printable file. Yeah, well, George, I, I've been pretty spoiled since the beginning. Like I said, I walked into a, a Stratasys printer uh, and, and materialized software. You know, materialize I think was really ahead of the game back then. Um, their DICOM configuration and segmentation and CAD process between Mimics and Threematic uh, has been a great a, a great tool for us. Honestly, the combination of them and Stratasys is what really enabled us to grow as fast as we did and be as successful as we were because of the partnerships with those companies. So we haven't seen, I mean, they're, they're adding to it. There's AIs that, that help segment faster. Um, we're, we're unique in the way that like with pediatrics, a lot of those AIs don't have the data to, to teach and train models for AI for those types of defects. So a lot of what we do is manual uh, and, and we have been fortunate to have a staff um, that, that excels at that and that can quickly learn pediatric anatomy and then segment out what we need for, for these cases. Um, that being said, it's becoming more and more competitive. I mean, I've, we've got demos with VR segmentation software right now um, that, that kind of changes the game and allows you to segment in VR potentially quicker. We've used 3D Slicer, you know, to, to do certain avenues um, of research and those types of aspects. We've played with a lot of the different softwares, but from a clinical perspective, that workflow has always been through uh, Mimics and Threematic, and it's it's worked well for us. So we've we've just been a loyal partner yeah. to them. That's awesome. I think I think they're awesome packages. I got to toy with them when I was working on Materialize, and the seat price is a bit scary, I think, for most people. Uh, but I think they're they're both amazing. I mean. Um, uh, I think it really, really, and I think Threematic, although it was like literally like some clinician somewhere could ask for a feature and they put it in. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's not the, I didn't find it easy to use. I don't know if you did, uh, but it's really, really incredibly powerful. Yeah. One of the interesting things we, we've created, you know, 3D models per se, you know, since, since my time in MRI school, uh, you know, MRCT school. So and even back beyond that, I mean, the 90s, you were making recons of, of CT scans, maybe even before that, uh, with these other medical software. So we have, uh, I'm known around here as the guy that asks for all the software just because my physicians will come and ask for different things. But we have we have post-processing software that originally never had anything to do with STL exportation or any of those things. But we can take segmentations we make in one software, put it in 3Matic to verify, go back to Mimics. Like we have multiple um, radiology post-processing softwares, my challenge to mimics. And then like, so Philips ISP is probably our biggest CT post-processing software as I'm always challenging them. Like you guys have the same point to race to, you know, we make files in different programs and we'll choose which program we use based on what we need. But someday if all that was in one place, the file format is all you need. You need to export Mm -hmm. into STL or OBJ or whatever you need for printing capabilities. And then some CAD program can jump on that and take care of it where um, there's the nuances with all of them. And every hospital working in this space would love for one program to do your CT recons with spin and tumbles to your 3D prints that you need to segment and and have, you know, placing magnets and everything else. But that's the competitive market of, of you know, imaging software. It's there's a lot of mm-hmm. stuff out there. And adding that 3D printing aspect, uh, I think Materialize has still been kind of on top, but we're evaluating a couple that seem to be threatening with some really cool capabilities. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And a lot of people don't really realize just balkanized software. Like, for example, the, you know, Philips has 
particular software, but also Siemens and uh, GE or whatever. And and uh, so typically, uh, yeah, I think I think the idea of this, like, imagine doing it in one click in one software package that would also automatically store the files correctly and stuff like that. That would save you guys so much time. Talk us a little bit through your workflow, like like uh, just from beginning to end. What do, what do you use to get to a three D print? Yeah, so one of the unique ways uh, our workflow uh, and and how we kind of got to being, you know, self sufficient with with funding in those aspects is you know there's already a workflow for creating three D reconstructions for CT or MRI. You know that that's that's requested by a physician or or part of a practice, and so you know that MRI gets done or a CT gets done, and then you post process that information. Um, so we emulated our 3D printing program to be the same way. So they, they will put an order into our electronic medical record for a 3D print. It will have uh, basic information such as what anatomy needs to be included, if it needs to be actual size. Um, and then we go and we protocol that order with the physician. So we'll ask, you know, which colors, which materials, um, if they need certain design features of the model so that you would cut it a certain way or build it like we talked about the tumor models where it all comes apart and kind of uh, into, into all the different anatomy. Uh, and then we go through the segmentation process. So like I said, we use Mimics uh, for segmenting the anatomy and 3Matic for designing in CAD. Uh, and then we'll have uh, GrabCAD, which is the software for the J850 on, on multicolor prints uh, or multi-material prints, I should say. And, and that's the unique avenue because it's in the EMR then we have our medical, either our, our radiologist or our imaging cardiologist go in and basically report out in our dictation software on that order. So we have everything kind of really well done. So it's very similar to having a CT or an MRI done. Um, you have a 3D print design and made um, with that image information and that report referring back to whatever the uh, original DICOM set was, whether it was the MRI accession number or the CT accession number. So we emulated the, the workflows that are already existing in radiology, and it's made it really easy to um, keep track of, understand, and document that whole process. And if on the software part where you would ask like one feature, you said a little bit about how you want to you know, have this one unified approach. Is that still your dream? Just like one software that does it all that would just make it, that would be the key thing for you? Or? Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, a lot of those studies, when they put in the 3D print request, We've already created that 3D reconstruction, you know, as part of the natural process. So let's say like for craniosynostosis, we always create a 3D of the skull uh, for, for our surgeon to look at um, using ISP. Well, now because we've requested a print, we go back in and we start over in, in Mimic software and we create that same segmentation. And then we go into the CAD side of it. We did figure out last year we can jump into 3Matic and then and transfer that 3D file back into Mimics for validation. Uh, but because of the FDA validation and trying to keep that flow there, we end up reworking lots of parts of different cases because it's not all in one one unified software. Okay, all right, that's that seems not super mega efficient. And and what what about the three D print? Okay, so first off, um, if we're talking about more of the functional models, then we get into what you discussed a little bit briefly earlier. This whole this gradient thing and, and trying to change these properties and change these gradients to make this this model behave better. That's something that not a lot of people really understand, right? How to do that? Um, yeah, I mean, you can use the the original settings. You know, there's I don't know how many settings Stratasys has in materials for the for the J850 DAP. Uh, there's quite a few, and so you can just use their library. Uh, but then basically, you can then go test and blend those different materials in layers, in, in percentages. Um, and there's I'm sure there's research labs in the country using that for various purposes. Um, we're really excited about 
you know, basically, you know, anything that we do with our surgeons, we get feedback. What's the likelihood that every surgeon's going to like exactly this, this tissue matrix for a, um, a rigid heart material that Stratasys has designed with their team, which they do a lot of good work and they, they get a lot of feedback. But if my cardiothoracic surgeon wants that to be, oh, that's too hard or too firm, we need it softer. Well, we can try another material because they have like three levels of heart material or three levels of like skin material per se. Um, you know, this one we're doing with, with craniomaxillofacial, you know, if, if the skin rips too easy, well, we might need to put a layer of something stronger in there to help hold it, hold it, you know, up so the surgery can be taken place and put back and sewn back together. So it just gives you the ability to fully design, you know, and customize the field to your surgeon specifically. And, you know, when you get into the pediatric realm, it, there's just so many variables that no matter what Stratasys would do uh, to create these different levels of materials, you're still going to have the feedback of those specific surgeons working with these specific uh, disease processes or anatomies that their feedback then allows us to manipulate that in-house and be able to do our own research um, and, and development. Okay, that sounds really cool. And, and from and then, of course, like, well, okay, you you press print and it magically appears, but there's also, um, you know, what do you do on, on the post-processing yeah. front? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, clean up and post-processing, all those fun things. Uh, we, uh, yeah, so once the print's finished, you know, there's going to be support material uh, holding up uh, any of the areas of the print that needed support for printing structurally. Um, we've got um, a power washing station that we use to, to spray off kind of the heavy. Uh, and then we soak it in a, a solution to kind of break down that barrier of the actual model material and where that support material kind of surface touches. Um, we haven't invested yet. I mean, post-processing has some really elaborate systems that use ultrasonics and different soaps to break that down and be more hands-off. Um, we've had good success in our cleaning uh, and post-processing so far, but some of the really intricate structures, you know, it's something that we've looked at and we're evaluating the need for that uh, in the lab as well. Um, you know, we do other things. We don't do any painting anymore, mostly because it, our, our colors are done by the printing. Uh, we'll do some clear coating for, for clear models like the glass skull we talked about earlier. Um, there's a really nice epoxy coating that that coats that so you don't have to do as as much time polishing but we do also do some polishing of clear models so that you can really see into different anatomies you have to be careful with those because obviously that's going to put a, a layer on the outside of the material so that it's a really unique process if we're doing those things to work with the surgeon to understand the needs of the model you know if you're looking at this kind of sweet is there is there you know is there anything else you would really desire you really like really feel this missing out like or that you really want to invest in yeah, I was just talking to uh, to Shay, my partner in the lab right now, the other day. The ironic thing is, like, I'm really excited for a multicolor FDM. Uh, we have some really unique processes that that we do, and we've proven using the JA50. Uh, but then you have certain certain individuals or, or people that would like our educational models, and uh, sometimes that price point is a little steep. You know, when it's a patient specific model, and we're used to spending so much money on surgical guides or surgical planning, that that expense doesn't really scare people away. But um, adding a, a machine that can print me, you know, a heart for a 10th of the price so that I can get that tool out to, you know, other people that would like to use it for education or, or simulation. It's kind of funny. That's, that's kind of the next thing that's on our radar as well as, you know, Stratasys came out with a MediJet, which is a really unique printer that has great reliability. It almost looks like a record that's playing and printing, getting something full color uh, and full material to back up the J850 would be 
would be really nice because uh, the the Eden just does one material at a time. But uh, you know, guys, that that stuff changes every month or two. You'll see something new pop up. We're really active in in three D screens right now. There's a lot of really unique technology coming out for visualization in 3D without wearing eyewear or other electronics. So we're we're kind of keeping a pulse on that and excited to see, you know, what if we have an entire room of fellows that we're trying to show, you know, this 3D model to? Well, we can hand it around the room, but what if we could put it on a, a, a big screen that actually emits in 3D and it shows what what that anatomy is? And we're close. I mean, there's a couple of companies that we are talking with that maybe we'll be able to help us get there. But those are the types of things that really allow us to get 3D use uh, to everyone. And, and that's where we can really start changing things with understanding uh, and then helping, you know, again, all of this is ultimately for patients. So if we can show patients easily and readily, you know, these types of 3D models um, and technology, it, it helps them understand their care and helps us better practice the medicine that we do. There's, there are a lot of, you know, robot surgeons and telepresence robot stuff that's coming out as well. I'm wondering if, if these two are, are meeting at some point or, or I don't even know if you guys do telepresence uh, operating yet. Um, so I, I, I should check this. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get fact checks, but I think we're one of the top um, robotic surgery pediatric sites in the country. Um, we use um, robotic surgeries here. I don't think they're telemedicine done. They're done by the physician here on site. Um, but when it comes to like the collaboration and the collision with 3D, I mean, you can 3D print simulation models. I'm sure that you can 3D print parts to kind of benefit, you know, those companies to make intricate tools or test different things. Yeah, I'll double check that and give you guys an email, but I'm pretty sure we are one of the highest um, robotic operating centers in the country when it comes to pediatric. But you guys aren't printing like that kind of stuff right now for it. I mean, I get that it's possible and, and a conceivable thing. I'm just curious. Yeah, like it's we, not we discussed a little bit when we added the robots uh, to the OR about some different simulators, but they've got some pretty unique methods already for testing. Fair, fair enough. Cutting, cutting out like, I can't remember what some of them were, like tomato seeds out of tomatoes and different ways to practice and train. Obviously not on the ones we use in the OR, but just the training avenues that these companies do. Um, we did have a really unique case. We added a, a cath lab here that's a... a it's a, it takes almost like a CT. It's a single arm cath lab robot that uh, they were going to train us with like a cell phone, how to do image fusion, which it, that's, it works. It's basically you can take a CT and then you can fuse it with this machine so that you don't have to use as much radiation on the patient. Well, we created a phantom uh, and injected it with uh, um, the contrast that we use in CT. And that allowed us to basically practice fusion and everything else realistically uh, in that cath lab. And that was the first of that type of cath lab to be built in a pediatric hospital. So when we get new technology, robotics, those types of things, you know, if there's not a good training tool, we often get reached out to by the teams that are using it because we can make specific tools for training and education. That phantom was a great experience of similar to when you're, you're talking robotic surgery, we haven't done a ton with that, but robotic, this robotic arm basically allowed for that type of a scenario. And we helped come up with a really good training plan so that when our first patient went in there, our technologists that run that cath lab had a better understanding of the machine, how it worked, and were just better prepared when the first patient came. Okay. And how about like, this is what everybody, you mentioned guys before, you know, this is kind of what everybody's kind of thinking about this idea of printing, for example, guides in the hospital itself. 
Uh, are you enthusiastic about that as a feature, or do you think that's kind of too dangerous, maybe, or it doesn't really have that much value? Or uh, no, definitely adds value. Um, we are kind of in the middle of figuring all of that out right now. There's there's two kind of avenues to go. You, you need to get into five ten k compliance when you're going to do anything that goes into into the body like that. Uh, I know other labs that are doing it in house um, that that do the, that process. Uh, and then there's other avenues to have partners. You know, part of this innovation center is we would love to have a partner come in that's already 510K compliant and understands how to make those surgical guides. And we have space for them to basically build out a clean lab and, and be in-house for us. Um, th- there's kind of those two ways. You know, you create and go 510K compliant and go through all the different compliance avenues to, to get that or find a partner that that you can work close, close with to do that. And we can order. We, we order medical guides currently for cranial and maxillofacial uh, surgeries. But um, that surgeon specifically, Dr. Vargo, would love to have, you know, more hands-on experience with making those guides exactly how he wants them or more of an influence into the creation of that guide. So we're facilitating him to be more hands-on with that and then looking at avenues to basically bring that either in-house or very close to in-house so that he can have uh, even more customized guides than he's used to getting now. Okay, that sounds like a really exciting future, I think, and then and beyond uh, would be uh, super exciting as well. Hey, Gabe, thank you so much for your time today. I think we, we learned a lot, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you seem to be having so much success with this, and, and I'm, I'm thinking that, that many more hospitals in, around the world are going to follow in your footsteps, so it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, thanks a lot, Joris. I really appreciate being able to, hear, uh, being able to be here. And uh, Max, thank you for being here as well. Oh, yeah, it's great to see you. 3D printing being used to help save lives. So always a good time. Thank you, Joris. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and you have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.